Brie, do you have anything left to say before we go into it? Um. <laughs> Just say anything and I'll edit it in like you said it right away. Got you. Get a clean take. Welcome to the Thunderdome. Can I get another one just for posterity? <laughs> Welcome to the Thunderdome. Okay, good. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> now, this one says, do you think, like, wolves will learn to swim because, holy shit, that would be so cool. And so it's goofy. It's a weird <laughs> one for sure. But, like... I don't know. Maybe it's a metaphor with us being wolves <laughs> and learning to adapt with climate change. Um, I, I'm glad I, I just learned something today. I did not know that wolves couldn't swim. Um, <laughs> I, 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 my dog swims very well, so I'm surprised. Um, it's a fair point. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's <laughs> going to be, I, I think there's going to be adaptation of the, you know, the, the, the time sort of the Darwin, you know, we're not talking about Darwinian timelines here though. So, um, yeah, the adaptations are going to have to happen a, a lot quicker than what we, you know, what we learned in school. Um, I do think we're going to adapt. I think people are going to adapt. Um, but uh, you know, I think issues of if people, if real estate agents start advertising their houses as they start including the elevation of the house, in the real estate ad, you know, people are going to start to adapt. Yeah. Um, I, I do think, I do think we're going to adapt in this. It's just the speed of adaptation that I, that's unclear. Yeah. Um, that's very fair. And, and so, and, and what we choose to protect in terms of cities, you know, if you, if you think again, thinking about New Orleans, New Orleans was a city that was sort of economically on the decline, largely going into um, Hurricane Katrina. And so, you know, it's a question of, you know, what do we choose to protect? And, you know, it, it's, it's a really, it's a really tricky question. Like where, what places should adapt and what places should that maybe the cost, the cost is too high mm. to, um, for, you know, the cost of adaptation is going to be so prohibitive that we need to, you know, think of other, other approaches. All right. So if you could just give us a brief explanation about what exactly are greenhouse gases. Mm. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, greenhouse gases are trace gases in the atmosphere. So they compose a very small percentage of the gases in the atmosphere. So what greenhouse gases do is they absorb some of the heat that is escaping from Earth's surface and going back out to space. And they reflect it back down to Earth. So it just, it'll eventually, that heat energy will eventually leave Earth's system, but what the greenhouse gases do is they hug that heat close to Earth's surface and delay the heat leaving Earth immediately. Um, could you define what exactly the Pleistocene was? The Pleistocene is what we call the Ice Ages. And they started about 2 million years ago. 
And during the ice ages, the climate was driven by these changes in the orbital variations of the Earth, the so-called Milinkovitch cycles. And they have different periodicities, a 100,000-year one, a 40,000-year one, and a 20,000-year one. And they combine and phase in and out with each other to change the amount of solar radiation that comes into the Earth. And that small variation in solar radiation was enough to trigger climate changes that were amplified by these feedbacks of the Earth's albedo and the CO2 and methane concentrations in the atmosphere. It's just, it, I mean, just to throw some numbers out there. Just throw up some numbers out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, That's all we do like, here. our population is over 7.7 billion people. Um, On Earth? Yeah. Dumb question. Yeah, that's okay. nice. Oh, uh, yeah. On Earth and <laughs> Asgard or whatever. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, and 4 billion of this, like the, this total, are in urban areas. And obviously, urban areas have more trash. 4 billion of the 7.7 7 are yeah, in urban areas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's nuts. So, it's, <laughs> it's just crazy because, yeah, no, we're not like farmers anymore, nomads. Yeah. Um, Tell that to whoever want, keeps wanting to do daylight savings. It's daylight savings, am I right? I think you're right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically, um, I guess the point I'm trying to get across is like, yeah, it's so easy for us to just say, like, just not even think about our trash economy because it doesn't affect us, but it's affecting. Yeah, my trash economy is I chug a jar of salsa with corn chips. I throw it in the recycling, and, and- yeah truck man comes by once a week bye bye salsa goodbye salsa we head back and buy some more salsa That's and then we head back like... buy it and we do it again so it's not really an economy for us but it's it's wild to think that for some folks it is. Uh, yeah this is like some people's livelihoods like people live by these waste management plants that affects their health people that work there who are literally just working there to survive that yeah. affects their health um and it's affecting our environment so it's just like these aren't just numbers at the end of the day. I mean, it really yeah. is real, even though so many of us, myself included, like get to turn a blind eye to it. Cause we are in a developed country where our waste management is pretty well regulated. So yeah. that's kind of my thoughts on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, what would you tell to someone who says to you that climate change is just natural because of Milankovitch cycles? I would say that the Earth's climate is very easy to change. The Milankovitch cycles are a very small push on climate, and they, revolt, they result in very large swings. And so human activity is a pretty large push on climate, and that too will result in climate swings. Just because the Earth's climate changes naturally, that doesn't mean that we can't have an effect. So in the Pleistocene, the Earth's climate, the temperature responded by 8 degrees centigrade with a 100 parts per million change in CO2 from 180 to 280. Now, with the anthropogenic effect, we've gone from 280 to over 400. So if the temperature goes up 8 degrees from 180 to 280, doesn't it seem pretty reasonable that will go up from what 280 to 400 
So what is often misunderstood about weather forecasts? Of primary concern here is, um, or I think the major misconception is, that weather is predictable out to about seven days into the future. And seasonal climate is being predicted out to a season. So how do we reconcile this contradiction that weather cannot be predicted usefully beyond seven days or so? And how come we are making the seasonal climate prediction out to a season three months in advance? Or uh, now we are also into the business of looking at decadal predictions out to 10 years in advance. So the weather prediction is an initial value problem. The seasonal climate prediction is, in some sense, a boundary value problem. So I'm bringing in a lot of verbiage here, and <laughs> I need to explain what I mean by yeah. that. Uh, initial value problem can probably be explained in this very famous adage that has been attributed to various people, uh, but it really relates to the theory of chaos, that the flap of a butterfly wing in the Amazon forest can cause a hurricane in the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. So the atmospheric motion, like any other fluid motion, is quite chaotic. So knowing the current weather as of this moment to its exact and accurate scales is very difficult because all our models are discretized. What do I mean by that? We break up the planet into small chunks of squares mm -hmm. or uh, some kind of a trapezoid or some form of a quadrilateral or some kind of a grid. So we discretize it. Why do we discretize it? Because in order to integrate our equations of motion and laws of thermodynamics, we need to break those equations into these discrete forms so that we are able to integrate this over time. Mm -hmm. So the moment we break down a continuous fluid system into these very discrete squares or shapes, uh, we immediately begin to make errors. So even in assessing the current weather or weather at any given instant of time, we make a lot of mistakes. So going back to this chaos theory, flap of a butterfly's uh, wing can mm. cause a hurricane, uh, comes back to this point that if you're making errors in describing the weather at any given instant of time, then predicting from that erroneous description of weather at any given instant of time, instant of time out into the future becomes problematic. Mm -hmm. So weather is an initial value problem. We are trying to assess and make our best estimation of what the current weather is so that the errors in estimating the current weather is the least so that we don't propagate that error when we make the weather prediction. So that's weather prediction. And we always, always will have errors in the weather forecast because we are limited by how we describe instant weather. Now, coming to the seasons, what the, the kind of prediction that we make out in a season over a seasonal timescale is not a weather three months from today. 
the prediction that we are making is what are the chances or the likelihood of a certain type of weather occurring in the season ahead will we have more clear days or more rainy days we are not going to say when is it going to be exactly dry when is it going to be exactly clear when is it going to be raining but we'll more than likely say that the frequency of having more rainier days is likely to be higher in the season so it's a boundary value problem in the sense that we are able to look at the likelihood of the frequency of certain types of weather occurring out into the future because it's being forced by boundary conditions what are those boundary conditions for weather the ocean temperatures or for that matter the radiative forcing by greenhouse gases when we make projections out into the future climate so they are conditioning the weather systems to have a certain type of or the certain likelihoods or likelihood of certain types of weather systems to occur more frequently or less frequently so that's what we are after when we make long term predictions yeah. but when we are making short term predictions we are making weather forecasts whether we'll have 2 inches of rain tomorrow or not or whether we'll have 5 degrees of drop in temperature tomorrow or not that's weather forecast climate forecasters watch the likelihood of certain types of weather occurring so very long answer for a short question <laughs> good answer though <laughs> question 2 from social media says and this is specifically from instagram i don't know if that's important or not will florida be consumed by the gulf and die <clears throat> or will it become the new atlantis You know, I never really thought about it like that and I think we need to redo the whole episode now. Talking about Because I have a whole new different perspective on it. You've just you've just readapted. Let me change just, gears. <laughs> we can re-record my, this whole episode. My cra- my code has been cracked <laughs> and uh I'm a whole different person now. What will we do when the mermen attack? <laughs> Aurora, what's what is your plan for that? And merwomen, sorry. Mer anyway. We barely slow them down with like Doritos Locos Tacos. What do you mean? What are you talking about? <laughs> They won't be ready for it. They won't be ready. And and I don't think that, you know, as far as as far as anatomy goes, pretty sure mermen don't have buttholes. Um, <laughs> don't know where they're going to store all that Doritos Locos Tacos I see what or you're get saying. rid of it. So, biological warfare is the first thing you jump to. <laughs> I don't mess around. <laughs> Uh, aerosol spray cans no longer contain chlorofluorocarbons, mm-hmm. which were found in the 70s um, by some really kick-ass scientists mm-hmm. at Irvine in California to be destroying the ozone layer, which is in the stratosphere. Mm. They actually found it out theoretically that the CFCs in refrigerants and spray cans were causing the ozone layer oh, very to cool. deteriorate uh, without even making any observations. They That's bonkers. From a theoretical standpoint. I mean, the stratosphere is a very hard place to yeah. access, if you can imagine. It's um, like roughly six miles above our heads. Okay. It's defined by just the density of gas. So 
the air just becomes less and less dense as you go up in the atmosphere. And the ozone layer is just uh, altitude, in the which is in the stratosphere, at which there's the highest abundance of ozone, mm. relatively. And it was um, locked in this reaction with these free chlorine radicals, which were part of the CFC, and it was... Um, it was killing the ozone layer. Yeah. But by phasing out CFCs in a worldwide effort, um, the industry stopped producing CFCs and they used substitutes. And this whole, like, it was, they had a protocol and a treaty was signed by all the nations of, mm. in the UN. And they all stopped using them and used these other less harmful things instead. Very cool. And uh, the ozone layer is almost fully um, back to normal now. That's so good to hear. Within my lifetime. That was yeah. signed in 1989. It was um, theoretically um, determined. It was theoretically calculated. And then it was observed. And then it was acted upon yeah. at the policy level. Badass. The wildfire one? We can. We can. Um, okay. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot, buddy. Uh, so we did get a question, and as someone from Colorado, maybe this is uh, is going to be pretty rough to hear. This was a question we got that just says, uh, what if I'm pretty okay with wildfires? You know, so, okay. So, so, um, so right. So it's funny. So I, I, um, so I spent most of my life in the West. Yeah. In, in the... And so uh, I grew up in Phoenix. I've lived in Colorado. I've lived in San Diego. Um, when I lived in San Diego, there was a wildfire that was so strong. Even from inside the city at night, you could see oh. you could see the, the fire way, way off in the distance. I mean, we, our house was not in any sort of danger. It was so far away. But at night, you could see the flames mm. kicking up on the hillsides. Um, and so um, I don't know. I guess... The, probably the people in Colorado are saying, "Hey, all you folks in Miami, why are you so you know just just move out of Miami? You know, you can go go somewhere else." Um, but wildfires are a big deal. Um, yeah. The in terms of and as the climate gets even drier, it's just so much easier for the most trivial thing to start up a major fire. And so, you know, somebody just camping and, you know, out there camping and maybe even trying to do the right thing, their car backfires and they don't notice their car backfiring. It leaves a spark and that, and everything's so dry that it just starts to go and go and go. And so mm. one of the, one of the big issues with, with wildfires is they oftentimes are, they go unnoticed long enough that it's difficult to get them under control. Yeah, And so the same issue with, with sensors is we think about sensors to detect sea level rise, sensors to detect things. I was just about to ask you about sensors for this. Yeah. And so if you can have sensors that are out there that are just cheap and easy that can hopefully catch a wildfire mm. you know, while it's still small, then – Or even one know, that could say, hey, the humidity is like dangerously low. 
Yeah, and, and right now, I mean, the humidity is almost always dangerously low in the West. Yeah. Um, and so, and it's just going to get worse. What exactly controls CO2 concentrations? There's like humans controlling it, and then there's also just like the natural concentrations. What exactly goes into the natural ones? On a million-year time scale, okay, a million years. So on really long periods of time, like from the Cretaceous to the present, the CO2 is controlled by two processes, volcanism, the recycling of the Earth's crust, and weathering, the CO2 attacks newly exposed rocks and it forms carbonic acid in the water and then it dissolves and it goes downstream and in the ocean it forms calcium carbonate or limestone. And so volcanism releases CO2 and weathering absorbs CO2. Okay, uh, now this news, now this is talking about a rubbish cafe. Oh, sick. It's a a pop-up cafe <laughs> that lets people pay for food with their plastic waste. Oh. They rewarded them with a free meal and coffee. Now, what I'm Was looking, this on Shark Tank? This <laughs> hey, I have, I'd like to give you 10% of my company for... Uh, no money because I'll, for a hundred thousand bottles, I'm looking for a hundred thousand. Here's the joke: I'm looking for a hundred thousand bottles in return for my for ten percent of equity in my what's this rubbish cafe. And Kevin O'Leary says, "Where's the money?" And they say, "It's just garbage, Kevin. It's just trash. It's just trash." <laughs> Can I put your name down? I Can mean, I I'd, I'd give it a yes. I I'd you'd give in. it a yes. I'd go in on it on a hundred thousand bottles. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. There are, there are kind of two ways that I've seen um, smart cities and climate change in conversation. Um, one being climate change mitigation and one being climate change adaptation. Um, and I was wondering, do you have any like examples of some smart city initiatives that can mitigate climate change and maybe some that like adapt to it? Yeah, there's a lot on the on the mitigation side. There's there's a lot, you know, in terms of basically cities trying to reduce their their sort of greenhouse gases, their sort of carbon footprint, Mm. Um, you you know, in the sense of, you know, cities encouraging people to use renewable energy, um, smart grids where they they have a better handle on their utilization of power, um, informing residents when they're, you know, when they're maybe above average usage of power compared to their neighborhood, compared to their neighbors. Um, cities are optimizing their physical resources um, in terms of uh, like their trash trucks, getting them to be the garbage trucks running more efficiently, more efficient routes, um, you know, air quality sensors throughout the city, knowing which parts of the city have air quality problems so that then you can um, develop strategies to deal with that. So there's a lot on that side that that cities can help and and you know from a global perspective we've got over 50 percent of the world's population living in cities and so Mm. these little changes that cities can 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 do can have a big impact in the aggregate 
in terms of sort of the other side of it, which is sort of how we deal with um, sort of, let's say, sea level rise, for example, in terms of technological solutions. Um, with smart cities, a lot of the strength around smart cities is the now issue. So we can put sensors, sensors are cheap, so we can put them in a lot of places, so we get high spatial density of information. They are connected to the internet, so we get live information from the sensors. Um, and they really help making sort of micro-scale, fine-tuning kind of um, changes make them possible. Um, and so I'm not seeing as many of those things in terms of the sort of climate change mitigation um, going on today. But I do think there's a lot of cool stuff that's that's out there that's a potential. Um, something that people are talking about are things like smart levees, where um, where levees might be inflatable um, so that they can adapt to different types of um, climate issues. So sort of with hurricanes or droughts or whatever the issue might be, the levees can adapt to those things. Wow, that's cool. And so, yeah, and I think and I think that's kind of the issue is 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 adaptable infrastructure going forward. Our demography is changing dramatically and it's anticipated to change even further as we move along. We are going to bring in more uh, people into the state over the years, not only within uh, from within U.S., but across the border from the Caribbean region, from South America, right? We are bringing in more senior people. We are going to bring in more uh, people of different races. There's going to be more diversity in our population. So the, I can think of lots of different policy decisions that are going to be made. And making those policy decisions in the absence of understanding how our climate is going to change in a changing world is going to put a lot of people in the crosshairs of the variability of climate. Do you have any suggestions for how others can successfully frame this discussion? Uh, you know, climate change is it's one of those topics that people feel very strongly about. It's, it's been heavily politicized. So, you know, a good strategy uh, in talking with people about controversial topics, whether it's climate change or whether it's, um, uh, you know, other um, uh, social uh, programs that may be controversial, is to try and find common ground. And if you can identify a commonly held beliefs uh, and appeal to them, that brings uh, sides together. It gives them something to find agreement on uh, and, and helps them um, start from a point of, of togetherness. Like, for example, regardless of what political party you, you may represent, we can all usually agree on some of the framing ideas like the, the value in preserving natural systems or uh, the value in maintaining uh, plant and animal diversity. So based on that, that sort of broad framework of ideas we can agree on, we can then um, use uh, those key points and, and just sort of branch out and explore ideas without maybe getting into a shouting match. Uh, and then people like to know how things connect. And if you can show that like before and after pictures, one of the techniques that I use in talking to audiences is showing them just the pictures before and after of some of the glaciers to show just how glaciers have retreated. It's actually showing them that global ice masses are, are depleting 
and, and so those those showing them those connections uh, really is a is a is a good technique. And then finally, you just have to have patience because you have to build these relationships. You have to pay into them. You're not going to change people's mind overnight. So the ocean, the ocean cleanup is using something. It's like a passive system. So it's it's going to be a floater that's being propelled by wind and the current to flow with it and to pick up trash like on its way to wherever it naturally goes. Okay. Which is actually kind of sick because it's autonomous, it's energy neutral, and it's scalable. I do love that. Say someone didn't really believe in climate change, and one of their arguments was that models are unreliable. What would you say to that person? Let me think. Because <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is an argument that we, you sometimes hear from people that don't believe in climate change. Well, um, let's not go to the modeling world. Let's see what has happened in the last 100 years. There is no part of the globe which is cooling. I paused there for a moment because <laughs> Southeast was considered to be one of those isolated pockets and Southeast China as well, which was thought to be regions of warming hole. Because if you look at the surface temperature trends over 100 years, displaying cooling trends. But in the most recent decades, we see that the rate of cooling has decreased in these two regions. I don't think there is any big coherent region around the globe that has displayed anything but warming. So even without relying on models, going back to 100 years, we see this trend of warming, which is quite overwhelming. So even if you don't go into the projection area Mm -hmm. uh, and models are uncertain and our models are unreliable okay i grant that but if you go back into the past uh, this is what we see great yeah thank you so much sure this has been fun yeah thank you for doing what you're doing yeah and again i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) we messed up you know it's all good. Was, well, hopefully we can. Wasn't well, my fault though. Yeah, <laughs> I tried. <laughs> Wowza! That was a fun episode to listen to. Wow, that was a really good fun episode to be listening to just now. I think that was really informative and good, and I did just hear it. Wow, what a fun interview to listen to and to have conducted in the past. Uh, yeah, so great interview. That was a sick episode. That was a sick episode of No Planet B. Um, thanks for uh... thanks for listening. It means so much. Um, if you want to follow us on Instagram, uh, we are no planet B FSU. And if you want to follow us on Twitter to see all of our sources and all of our tweets to Steve Malloy, it is uh, no planet B cast. If we had a Tinder, we hope you would swipe right on us. We could get a Tinder going for no planet B. We could get a Tinder going. Mm-hmm. I don't see any problem with that. Let us know if you want that guys. We'll, we'll deliver. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for listening. And, uh, yeah. Have a great, have a great night, uh, Rebecca. If you're listening. If you're listening. All right. See y'all on the internet.